You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. With that said, if you've been around, um, you know that we're walking through the book of Colossians uh, at a fairly brisk pace. Um, but, but essentially, up until this point, or, or really throughout the book of Colossians, even in the clu- conclusion that we will arrive at next week, um, we're being called to, to one thing, uh, and that is to keep Christ at the center, not only of all that we are, right, but of all that we do as well. And so that is, that is the simple message uh, of Colossians, keep Christ central. Um, and so Paul, up to this point, has summoned us to uh, a singular Savior, right? And he's called us to delight in Him singularly. He's called us to trust in Him singularly. And of course, last week we talked about how we are to, to have an allegiance that is for Him and Him alone, a singular um, allegiance to that Savior. Um, and so let me just be honest before we jump into the text that we have before us. Uh, I am probably going to say some things today that depending on who you are um, and what your background is, you will either be led to believe that I am a uh, silly, uh, crying liberal or a bigoted conservative. And um, I'm okay with that. I actually think that it's probably a good thing um, to hold that tension um, and of course, this follows the week in which I confessed some pretty serious need for approval issues. So thank you, Jesus, for that. Um, <laughs> glad to be here. Um, but again, let's just be reminded, right? All of this is rooted in the progression of the book of Colossians, singular God, Jesus, right? Who's communicated himself to us perfectly and wonderfully in a way that is tangible and understandable. Right? We're to delight in that, that God would make salvation known in a way that we could actually comprehend it, tangibly see it, feel it, know it, right, in Jesus. And we're to trust in that work alone, that because He is the singular God, when He says we're saved, we are actually saved, so we don't have to pile up our good works as insurance, right? And because He's done these things on our behalf, we're to be singularly and solely allied to this new kingdom, this new people that he is building, not not the old self. And so the text this week is a continuation um, of last week's call to allegiance, where Paul is teaching expressly how Christians should walk out their allegiance to Jesus, not just in the general sense, which was last week, but in the specific sense and specifically within existing relational structures. So let me pray, and we'll jump into Colossians 3. Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, Thank you again for the opportunity to be gathered together. And Lord, to be gathered together in the knowledge this morning that you reign and rule. And Lord, that in entering here this morning, that if we have called upon the name of Christ for salvation, if our life has been hidden with him in you, then we are heirs according to the promise, and we will appear with him in glory together. And so I pray, Father, that that 
uh, banner of unity would excite us. That this morning, if we are mourning, we would be comforted. If this morning we are prideful, that we would be humbled, Lord, and that we would all walk together in the grace and the mercy of your Son, Jesus, by the power of your Spirit. And Lord, we acknowledge that uh, we cannot do that on our own. We need the renewing power of your word. So Lord, take your word this morning and fashion our hearts accordingly. That this new kingdom, that this new peoples might be a compelling witness to the reign and rule of the Lord of Lords and the Prince of Peace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so here's what we're going to do, just like uh, we've done the past couple of weeks. We are going to walk through um, verse by verse, and we're going to take um, some, some bits and pieces. We're going to try to explain it as best we can, and then we are going to dive into what I believe is the, the main idea um, from this text. And so just know um, that there are a lot of nuances that are going to be sacrificed for the sake of communicating the one big idea that I think we need from this text. So if you have questions, feel free to come and ask them. But let's start in verse 18. This is what it says. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, right? Now remember, this is entirely and totally tied to last week. We took a break because I'm human and I don't want to preach for three hours, nor do you want to sit for three hours. But there's no break there in the text, right? This is a continuation. So this is part of the people, the church at Colossae, putting off the old self and putting on the new self, right? So in being in allegiance to Christ, wives, this is one way that that can be expressed, right? In submission to your husbands. A couple of things to note there, right? It says, to your husband. So that means this is not a carte blanche, any man, anywhere you should submit to. To your husbands. And if you need a reason why, because it's fitting in the Lord. It's fitting in the Lord. Clear and as simple as can be. And I love that that phrase not only gives you an impetus from which to do it, it also gives you a guideline a guideline for when not to do it because there are ways where submission turns into something that is not submission, into domination or into other things that are not fitting in the Lord. Now, some would say that this text, even right now, right, I've already lost half of you in the room. Some would say this text is oppressive. But Paul is actually, if we, if we know first century Roman culture, then what, what we begin to understand is that Paul is actually dignifying wives who in a first century Roman culture would have been ordered to obey rather than encouraged to submit. And there is a difference between the words submission and obedience, which is why he doesn't tell the child in verse 20 to submit. He tells them to obey. All right, let's keep moving. Verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them, right? So husbands, love your wives. I hate to rain on your parade, but this is a non-sexual love. This is Jesus' love. The Bible Dictionary describes this love as love for a person and their good as understood by God's moral character. This kind of love is especially characterized by 
a willing forfeiture of rights or privileges in another person's behalf. Right? So this isn't love that makes me feel good, right? This isn't love that is for my benefit towards my needs and desires, right? This is a love that is entirely and totally bent towards love of the other person and their benefit, so much so that I'm willing to forfeit my own benefit. And what does he go on to say? Do not be harsh with them. This kind of love does not express itself harshly. It simply does not. So what is Paul doing? Right? He's dignified the wife in a culture that told her she was not worthy of dignity. And it is checking the power of the husband who in the first century Roman culture had all of the power. Checking it with the Bible's understanding of love. Keep reading. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord, right? So children, as long as you are under the protective care of your parents, you should obey them plainly and simply because it pleases the Lord. Now again, this might seem like something we can just move right on past, but we have to understand what Paul is doing here. Paul isn't just saying, all right, kid, do this and let's move on. Paul is dignifying children in the context of the kingdom of God as able in and of themselves to please the Lord in their obedience to their parents. Remember, right, that this is the culture in which children came to Jesus and the disciples said, hey, move along, all right? You don't mean anything here. You add no value. You're, you're, in fact, you're... You're, you're robbing value from this situation, so please stay away. And what does Jesus say? No, 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 no. Let the children come. Paul is dignifying someone who in that culture was powerless. Keep reading verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged, right? So a child's obligation to obey doesn't mean that fathers get to crush their spirit in the process. Think of the prodigal son. The story would have been much less compelling if upon his return the father had said, I told you so, now go sleep in the barn, you idiot. It just would have been. What's he doing? Paul is checking the power of fathers with the Bible's understanding of discipline, which is borne out in grace. Verses 22 through 25, bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done, and there is no partiality. What's he saying? Bond servants, obey your masters, not just when they're looking, right? That's what it means when it says, not by way of eye service, right? He's saying, have in integrity in your work, not in order to please them, but in order to please the Lord, out of a sincere heart, out of reverence for God, do these things. He says in verse 23, whatever you do, work 
heartily. That means to do something from your soul, right? And then he goes on to say, look, you may not have an inheritance that is earthly, but in Jesus you have the inheritance. And I love the fact that that word right there is the, because you see, we all think we have an inheritance when really there's only one. It's the inheritance, and the only way you get it is through Jesus. I love that. And he says, if you've been wronged, it will be paid back. What's Paul doing? He's dignifying what would be seen as menial, trivial labor. And he's saying, no, it pleases me, and there is inheritance to be had for it. As you go on to say in chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Right? And what's he calling the master to? Remember who you are. Remember whose you are. Right? How has your master in heaven treated you? Would you want for him to treat you differently? Would you want for him to treat you the way that you treat your bondservants? What's he doing? He's checking cultural power with the Bible's understanding. And so what, right, what is this text calling us into, right? We said at the beginning, this is a direct continuation of last week. And so the reality is that in this, again, Paul is just calling the people at Colossae and he's calling us by extension to be who we are, to live lives of allegiance to the kingdom that we have now entered into by the grace of Jesus, that kingdom that is above where Christ is, where he is seated at the right hand of God and where we have also been raised to be with him. And we're being shown what that looks like with regards to specific roles, some designed by God and some that are a result of the fall. And so the call in marriage is to submission for the wife and love for the husband. The call in the parent-child relationship is to obedience for the child and gracious discipline for the father. The call in the master-bond-servant relationship is to integrity for the bond-servant and just and fair treatment for the master. But what stands over and above all of this is ultimately a call to counter-cultural living, to living, again, according to our new citizenship, according to the rules of heaven. And we see this evidenced clearly in that all that Paul is calling each party to do is extraordinary in first century Roman culture. If you had walked up to any given person on the street in ancient Rome at this time and said any one of these things, they would have looked at you and said, say what? I don't think I'm hip enough to say that, so sorry. <laughs> they would have looked at you confused. In each of these relationships, Paul is leveling the playing field. He's calling the more culturally powerful one to humility 
And he's calling the less culturally powerful one to dignity. He's bestowing to them dignity. And that's the call for the Christian, is to live in that way. That regardless of where we find ourselves in terms of the social or cultural strata, if we need to be checked, we need to let God check us. If we need to be encouraged and dignified, then we need to let Him encourage and dignify us. But the sad reality is that because the world is broken, power dynamics are skewed. Where we were made for fellowship both with God and with one another, we now look to supplant both of those. So we want rulership as God, and then we want power over others. We might not say it in those terms, but that's the reality. So rather than being committed to the glory of God and the good of our neighbor, which was what we were created for, we're instead committed to our own glory and to our own good. So rather than submitting to God and His good designs for human flourishing, we submit to ourselves and our skewed designs of our flourishing. And often this comes not only to the neglect of others, but at the expense of others. And so what what begins to happen when we enthrone ourselves is we begin to think that submission is incompatible with our rulership. I'm in charge here. I'm not the one who submits. We begin to think that obedience is incompatible with our rulership. I'm the one in charge here. I don't obey you. You obey me. We begin to think that love, in its self-sacrificing sense, is antithetical to our rulership. Heaven forbid I would be seen as weak. I want to maintain power, we begin to see gentleness as antithetical to our leadership. Heaven forbid that I be seen as permissive or meek. I might get trampled over. And what's amazing about all of that is that Jesus, right? Jesus, this this person who Through Colossians, we now know to be the supreme, preeminent Lord of the universe who is actively right now holding all things together. That this supreme person, this supreme and glorious being who stands outside of time and space and who has existed in eternity finds none of those things to be beneath him. None of them. The perfect man, Jesus, walks before us in all of these. He ushers in the new humanity and he shows us this new way to flourishing or the way to flourishing, the way that he designed when he created all things. And it's quite clear, I mean, we don't, we don't have time to go through all of these, but it's obvious from the Scriptures that Jesus isn't above submission, right? He submits to the will and the work of the Father, Luke 22. Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus isn't above love, right? 
This is how we know love. Christ died for us, right? 1 John or Romans chapter 5. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us at a point when there was no benefit for Him. Jesus isn't above obedience. John chapter 5, what does He say? I, the Son alone can do nothing. I only do what I see my Father doing. I am about my Father's business. Jesus isn't above gentleness. Matthew chapter 11, right? We love this this part of Matthew. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Jesus isn't above simple work, right? This is the man who in Mark 6, when people are talking about this Jesus who is or might be the Messiah, somebody comes and goes, isn't that dude a carpenter? Utterly unimpressed with the menial occupation of Jesus' 30 years of unrecorded life. Jesus' supremacy doesn't make him above any of those things. His ability to empathize with us as God in the flesh leads him to love, compassion, justice, mercy, gentleness, submission, obedience. Brothers and sisters, this is what makes Jesus the true revolutionary. Here's what I mean by that. in, In the history of revolutions, there has never been a revolution that has been truly revolutionary. Because you know what happens? The balance of power shifts, but the ways in which that power is exercised over the people is the same. It's just as abusive. It's just as devolving. It's just as good at advantaging some and disadvantaging others. And so we can ride the seesaw as long as we want, or we can join the true revolution. And here's what I mean by that, by Jesus being the true revolutionary. Jesus is the only one who doesn't use his power to rule abusively or domineer his subjects. Rather, he uses his power to bend low to serve them, to dignify the culturally powerless, and to humble the culturally powerful. bringing them both together in perfect and abiding unity. And so listen, we we could talk at length about the nuances in this text. We could talk about how wives can live appropriately submissive lives to their husbands, knowing that it's no indignity to be like Jesus. We could talk about how husbands must love their wives and not just in ways that are convenient to you or at times when Sports Center is not currently on. We could talk about how children can be obedient to their their parents while they are under their protective care and so honor the Lord. We could talk about how fathers could discipline their children in ways that don't crush their spirit because isn't that the way your father in heaven has treated you? We could talk about how CEOs and business business owners and bosses can treat their employees justly and fairly 
And those of us that are employees can work with integrity for the Lord, even if our boss is a schmuck. But there's something standing over all of us that I don't want us to miss. And it's that in all of these relationships, Paul is challenging existing power dynamics. And so it is not at all unreasonable to say that this readily speaks to our current national divide and its effect on our most recent election. So I'm going to say a few things, right? And I'm going to preface it with a couple of things. One, be gracious to me, okay? Be gracious to me. Right? You can post on Facebook where all your friends think and act just like you and everybody can like and love it. I'm standing in front of you right now, right? Having, only, having had less than a week to process this, like you with similar confusion and similar distress and knowing that I'm going to have to then present it before all of you. Okay, be gracious. And then the second thing you need to know is this. I love you whether you voted for Trump, whether you voted for Clinton, whether you voted for a third party, or whether you abstained entirely. I am not, in saying these things, trying to single out or pick at one group of you. I think that these are easily applicable to all of us. And if so if you feel defensiveness rising in you, maybe, just maybe, that's not because I'm a jerk, but it's because the Spirit's working. Okay, let's do this. First, if you are in a position of cultural power, it is always to be leveraged on behalf of those without it. Here's the reality, brothers and sisters. Persons of color, minorities, the rural white working class living in poverty, refugees, religious minorities, Muslims, deserve our dignity, respect, protection, and our humble and sincere consideration. They are fellow bearers of God's image. We simply cannot callously cast off their concerns. Second, if you can't empathize with someone's point of view, it is your duty to listen to them until you can. Even if you still end up disagreeing with their methods or their conclusion. You are duty-bound, Christian, to do that. We are to be slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to anger. And this has been one of the most frustrating and maddening things on all sides of this election because we've we are all talking past one another, denigrating one another, and not even giving it a cursory glance or try to understand why someone might, God forbid, think or vote differently from us. Sorry, you can tell that I'm frustrated. 
It is an unprecedented level of arrogance to think that you are right about everything all the time. That goes for me too. Lord knows I am not immune to that. Third, if you feel marginalized, threatened, and mistreated, your master is in heaven and he pays back wrongdoers. That is not your job. You have a defender who is the supreme, preeminent Lord of the universe. And Christians, your brothers and sisters are obligated to stand with you as well. But even if they don't, Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you, no matter how bleak the circumstances may look. There are no strangers, aliens, foreigners, or refugees in God's kingdom, just sons and daughters. So here's what this means for us. If the Lord of our universe and the king of this new kingdom that we've been ushered into by grace through the blood of Jesus, if he is this kind of revolutionary, and if he has gone before us in submission and in obedience and in giving dignity and in walking in humility, if he's done all of that, then that's what his kingdom looks like. Which means that the church is the true revolution. Which means that if we are looking for a political end a political means to arrive at the end of human flourishing, it will fail. But if the church steps into all that we have been called to do and be by Jesus, then you have a revolution. Then you have a place where, where we can elevate and dignify the broken and the meek, where we can check and humble the powerful and the prestigious. Do you realize that's the room that you are in right now? I know some of us. We know each other in here. We may even know who people in here voted for, and we're going, right? But you belong to another kingdom. You belong to a kingdom where Republican and Democrat, white and black, white collar and blue collar, can not only say, peace be with you, but can actually labor for and defend peace for everyone. Because where we are powerful, we're checked. And when we're downtrodden, we're dignified. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We do thank you again just for the opportunity to be gathered together in a room that is safe for us to be who we are. Because who we are is intimately wrapped up in who your son Jesus is. Our life is not only yours, God, but it is hidden in you with Christ. So I pray, Father, that you would help us to be a people who willingly and boldly repent of our sins. 
God, right now I repent of my urban elitism that says because I have a certain standard of living, a certain standard of education, I somehow know what is best for everyone in our country. I repent, Lord, of my callous carelessness for the suffering of others, that because I live a relatively unimpeded life, I shouldn't care about those who do. Lord, that is antithetical to your greatest command, which is to love you with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love my neighbor as myself. So Lord, be merciful and be gracious to us and give us the power of your Spirit that in that power we might strive to maintain the unity in the bond of peace as Ephesians describes it. And Lord, as we come to the the table today and we take of the, the bread and of the cup, Lord, if we need to be checked, would you check us? If we need to be humbled, would you humble us? And Lord, if we come and we are downtrodden and we are discouraged, would you dignify us? Would you help us to see that we were not beyond your thoughts in the moment of redemption, but rather we consumed them? And Lord, may we leave this place a people who are more willing to listen, a people who are more willing to be slow in our speech, a people who, as Colossians 4, chapter 6 says, would speak in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, seasoned with salt. We love you, Jesus, and we are grateful to be numbered among your kingdom in which you rule as the Prince of Peace, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.